1: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's Wednesday morning, November 4th. How are you? I hope you're well. I think we're going to be okay. Um, We're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about for a long time. Um, And I want to get right to it. Uh, Normally, this would come out at midnight. We're going to get this up earlier than that because it's timely. It's a conversation I just had with Matt Iglesias, the writer and co-founder of Fox.com. It's a good conversation because Matt's a smart guy and I'm a stupid guy because I didn't have him on over the last five years. I should have fixed that. We'll get right to that conversation right now. Matt Iglesias I've been working for Vox Media for five years and you've been on my show, so this is the right time to have you on. Welcome, Vox co-founder, Matt Iglesias.
3: Really glad to be here. How's it going?
2: Uh, I don't know know what's going on these days. (laughs) So we'll we'll just pull back the the veil a little bit. Matt and I are recording at 9.38 a.m. on Wednesday. So things have been changing and they will change by the time you hear this. Um, But right now, it looks like if you squint... And cross your fingers, it looks like Joe Biden might be headed towards a super narrow electoral college win. Um, and maybe that's going to be wrong by the time you hear this. But what I want to talk about is sort of how we got
3: to where we are now.
2: Um Do you have a big grand takeaway from from what you've seen over the last 12 hours?
3: You know, I mean, one one takeaway, which is boring, um, but I recall from 2018 is that you do have to wait until all the votes are counted Mm -hmm. before you can ascertain. You know, the, the polls were obviously not accurate. Um, And we can see in a couple states, like in Florida in particular, there was like about a five point miss in Trump's direction. Uh, But if you want to assess the overall state of polling, we really do need all the votes to be counted, Mm -hmm. including things that don't matter. Like there's a ton of outstanding votes in New York, uh, which are not going to determine who the next president is, but are going to pump up Biden's popular vote margin, possibly by quite a bit. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to see, right? I mean, if you were watching television Tuesday night, uh, one thing you will have seen is that the demand to to do live analysis in a really definitive way leads a lot of the people who are on TV to say things that that don't age well. Um, and, you know, some of us were sitting at home being like, uh, you shouldn't be saying that stuff, Wolf Blitzer. Uh, but it's, you know, it's like the nature of the programming is like yeah. people, people want strong answers.
2: I also don't think that's going to change. There was a lot of talk in advance of the election about how we were going to be uh, more circumspect and caution people that we didn't know what was happening, which, by the way, I watched a bunch of stuff. I spent a bunch of time actually watching Fox in particular. And they were they they were you could tell they were excited when they thought Trump was going to win. But they also kept saying, we don't know. And and when one of you know, when Stuart Varney would go off the rails And they'd pull him back in. But let's let's go back to the polling because um, there's some things we do know. Right. We know that that we have more turnout than ever before. Uh, It looks like Biden's uh, total popular uh, count will will exceed. Uh, He'll have more. He'll have more votes than Trump at the end of the day. But also that Trump will have had more votes than in 2016. We know some of these things. But back to the polling, um, we all sort of saw right away. Oh, the polls are off on Florida. But they're off a lot of places, right? They, there was an 11-point gap in, uh, in Wisconsin as of a couple of days ago, according to The New York Times and Siena. Um, the Senate races, um, which were supposed to be very competitive or tip over blue, look like they didn't work at all. Or they didn't they didn't tip at all, and the, the Republicans may hold on to the Senate. So it looks like polling was off throughout the country in various different races. We won't know sort of if there's a consistent error, but there's a lot of errors so what do we what do we do with polling? We're not getting rid of polling. How do we make it better?
3: Uh, polling is really hard. You know this is something I was trying to emphasize in my coverage of this in advance that what you you will probably hear more and more about you know the idea of shy voters um and that the The problem is harder than that honestly. Um, Response rates across the board are incredibly low. It was about 6% of people answered surveys in 2018, and people tell me it only got lower this time around. Uh, So what all pollsters are doing is they are working very heavily with modeling of the electorate because they need to they're working with unrepresentative samples, right? Both the random digit dial sort of traditional pollsters and the more sophisticated uh, modern internet pollsters are working with non-random samples. And then they are trying to use math to gain meaningful information from that. And they are having a really hard time, Um, Some of us who are fans of Dave Wasserman, who's a great House elections analyst, noted that he said in 2016, you could tell that something was up with the national polling because the private polling being done in the House races showed Trump was quite a bit stronger than people Mm -hmm. expected. So he said, and, and this has been true in my experience, that, well, the private polling was very bullish for Biden this time around. So that led me to have sort of extra confidence in the public polling because you know people with tens of millions of dollars on the line i mean they pay really smart people to design these polls and they and they couldn't do it and, and let's you know.
2: be clear whether it's a public poll right one that you and i can see the results of um or a private poll paid for by the parties themselves they both want to get it right um yes. <laughs> and and ezra was talking to to Nate Silver last week about the fact that if anything the pollsters might be more conservative because if they if they miss they get hammered, like they're getting hammered today. And so they'd rather they'd rather they'd rather be uh, underestimate the margin.
3: Yes. <laughs> and I mean, pe- people invested a lot of money, right? I mean, so m- m- like Michael Bloomberg put, what, 100 million dollars into Florida ads for mm-hmm. Biden. Um, and he, I'm sure, puts a fair amount of money into polling for his yep. operation. And he clearly believed on the, you know, with real money at stake, right? Not just people blowing off steam, that that was a very close race in Florida, that it made sense to invest a bunch of money in there. And if you knew the truth, you would have put that money into Georgia instead, uh, which is a cheaper state anyway, and where Biden was doing better. And people just didn't know. It's It's a conceptually, you know, before the 1950s, people didn't think that they could measure public opinion with surveys, um, then it turned out that they could. They developed techniques. And now I think it's possible that we're entering an era where we can't.
2: You know, the the post-2016, like after everyone calmed down for a while, conventional wisdom was actually the polling wasn't actually off. By much. The the national polling was mostly correct. The state polling in a handful of states was off, but not by a huge swing. It was a surprise. It was all kind of in the margin of error. And then after that, there was a lot of, oh, we're going to change the way we do our polling because we realized we were missing. We were going to wait by by education and, and and modify all that. So people spent a lot of time and energy trying to make polling better. It's not like they're just doing it blindly. Um, I'm hearing people suggest today you should not put faith in polls. But absent that, what are you going to – how else are people, either people like us in the media gonna, who, who are doing it kind of for sport um, and people who are doing it for real going to make predictions about this stuff?
3: Well, and not just predictions, right? I mean the sort of forecasting has gotten yes. very big. But, you know, when you do – uh qualitative journalism, right? I mean, there's lots of pieces. There have always been great pieces based on interviewing voters and mm-hmm. talking to local civic leaders. Uh But you want to contextualize that kind of information with public opinion data, right? Like the fact that I met one guy who, you know, like, loves Donald diner. Trump yep. for such and such a reason. Like, that's fine. That like That's good color for a story. But you still want to know, like, what is this story about? Is it about the dead enders who support an unpopular candidate? Or is it about a, a tide that is sweeping the country? So, you know, like Jenny Medina at, at The New York Times, she did a flurry of pieces in the final month of the campaign about Latino Trump voters. Um, you know, and they're, they're qualitative pieces, but they're good pieces. Um, uh, and given where it looks like the election landed, I think now a lot of people are gonna go back and and read those pieces. Because it, it was wasn't
2: a, it wasn't just uh, uh, Cuban American voters in in Miami, right? It was people on the border of Texas uh, turning away from the Democrats, which which they were identifying.
3: E- exactly, exactly. And you know, so people will look and they'll say, okay, well, that was prescient. But ex ante Like, what can you tell? Right? I mean, the difference between Trump gets 15% of Latinos and Trump gets 25% of Latinos, it matters a lot electorally. But either way, like you would find some people and you can interview them and they would tell you what they like about Trump. So a, a world without polling is hard to imagine. And yet, So you know, after twenty sixteen, as you said, they changed the weighting methods, and in twenty eighteen, the state polling errors were smaller, and they largely offset. So that so the national polling was about spot on, uh, but Democrats did way better in California than the state polls suggested, Mm -hmm. and worse in a bunch of other places. Um, So you know that led some people to think, okay, the methods are improving, we're catching up, Uh, but now it looks like the problems are continued to be very severe. It's just like it's a hard problem. So Trump For a
2: while, kept saying, "Look at my boats." I got all the boat people, and we all had big laughs at that. But then, a little more seriously, they would say, "Look at our rallies." We have these huge turnouts, and this was, you know, this is something that after twenty sixteen, people said, "Oh, in retrospect, you know, we saw this huge enthusiasm for Trump showing up at 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 conventions and and rallies. That should have meant something to us." And I I, I, again, I spent time on a lot of conservative leaning uh, Facebook pages last last couple of days, and they were pointing to these big turnouts. Should should we take that more seriously now? If people are spending a lot of their time and money to travel to go see Donald Trump in a rural part of Pennsylvania, should that be a flag for us that that actually is meaningful and maybe isn't
3: captured in polling? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know, you know, exactly what to make of something like that, especially this year when the candidates were not pursuing symmetrical right. strategies. Right now, there are definitely times, right, if you go back to the 2008 Democratic primary, um, early on, Hillary Clinton has a huge lead over Obama, uh, but Obama is doing really big rallies even then, right? And so you look back on that and you say, okay. In that case, it's not that the polls were wrong, but it's that the rallies were conveying information that this guy who a lot of people hadn't heard about was very exciting, was very charismatic, that people liked being Obama fans, and that there would be media coverage of this phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. That it would snowball and, and push him forward. Something similar with, with Bernie Sanders in 2016, right? That while he was still largely unknown in communities where he was known, it was becoming a very, very, very big deal. To say the incumbent president of the United States can draw a large crowd in a random mid-sized community, um, to me, that genuinely doesn't convey that much Information. I mean, I remember going to see uh, President George H.W. Bush when I was a kid uh, speaking somewhere in New York. Uh, that certainly did not mean that he was on the verge of winning. Right. And, and, you it know, was there just was a lot of
2: coverage of Elizabeth Warren, and Kamala Harris's rally sizes during the primaries, and they didn't break through. Right. Uh, I I do. I do. I mean, at at least, you know, when you hear Tucker Carlson, who, by the way, can make a persuasive argument saying you guys are missing it when you when you're ignoring the people of this downtrodden Pennsylvania town, you know, it seemed kind of persuasive on the day and the day after seems even more persuasive.
3: Well, you know, here's the thing, though, right? Right now, I think a lot of people are still dealing with the emotional fallout of Biden underperforming his polling, and in particular, Florida being way off and called early. Uh, It looks like, you know, from the information that I have as of Wednesday morning, like Biden will win the election, most likely, that he'll have a five or six point popular vote majority. And we may all feel two months from now, like, yeah, you know, like, people really didn't like Trump. And they voted him out, right? And we'll be on to a whole bunch of other questions about, like, Democrats in the Senate map and how can Biden deal with Mitch McConnell and, like, lots of, I think, serious problems for American uh, progressives and, and the Democratic Party that need to be dealt with. But the are we underestimating Donald Trump issue, I think, may start to loom a little bit less large. That's an issue, though, right, is that Trump himself has been such an emotional flashpoint, not just for his supporters, but for his opponents, right? So many people who I know, and I bet people who you know, because I think we know the same kind of people, um, find what Trump symbolizes to be so offensive to them. Right. Not like I look at some regulatory measure that the Trump administration. Right. Passed. It's not a debate about and tax it, policy. Right. I, 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 and it's and it's not concrete. Right. Like, I don't know people who are fired up about how the Labor Department repealed the fiduciary. Rule. I mean, I do know one person who is, but <laughs> that's like th- that's not what drives opposition to Trump. Right. Um. By the same token, it's probably not what drives support for Trump. But what we see is that there's just like there's more to politics than Donald Trump right and and that's going to be evident as it kind of fades away and there's a policy argument that continues to take place in the United States of America where and a cultural argument right where people college graduates who consume certain kinds of highbrow media do exist in a little bit of a Conceptual bubble in terms of what kinds of ideas they are exposed to.
2: You mean our coworkers?
3: Yeah, and yeah. what and what they think, and not just coworkers. I mean I even more so, my my <laughs> my social friends, right? Like the idea that Donald Trump is a totem of. White supremacy in the United States is so entrenched among a certain set of readers and writers that the idea that there might be Cuban Americans who are appalled by Democrats playing footsie with socialism or rural, culturally conservative Mexican American voters in the Rio Grande Valley who don't like. You know, Democrats, uh, gender politics
2: or my Ge- Jewish dad in Minneapolis, who I haven't talked to for months, but I am going to i actually have to sit down and talk to him why I voted for Trump.
3: Yeah. And, and there's just there's just a wide range of sentiments out there in the country. I mean, it's a it's a very diverse country. People care about a lot of different things. And. You know, we in the in the media, particularly in the digital media, I think can reinscribe this sort of younger college graduate big city worldview that I am part of, but like many people are not.
2: Gonna take a quick break from our conversation with Matt. We'll be right back.
1: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: And we're back. So let's. So I do want to talk to you about policy and sort of where we go, but I, w- I want to just b- track back a little bit. This is a media podcast. Um, I consumed a lot of coverage last night, and obviously over time, um, the media told us. That this scenario that we're looking at today was very much a possibility that it'd be narrow, that it could be extended for days, it could come down to voting, uh, counting votes in Pennsylvania. Um, But last night, even though they had said all that. They didn't seem to believe that was going to happen, and I think a lot of it is because again the polls told them that wasn't going to happen, and and the campaigns told them that wasn't going to happen. Um, I was I read a New York Times story that talked about the Trump campaign sort of falling apart and and the rats fleeing the ship, and I went back and read the exact same story from 2016 um, that was it was written by some of the same people, um, and I think all that reporting was accurate. They were describing the mood in Trump land when Trump and his people thought they were going to lose in 2016. And again, in 2020, I think they are still surprised. Um, can we, is there a way for the media to do better? Or is this just sort of structural? Like, look, we have polls. We talk to people in the campaigns. This we, we need a narrative just because that's how you tell a story, literally. And that's the best we can do. We can't
3: do anything other than what we've been doing. Well, look, I mean, one thing, this is not a media story. Or rather, the, the media is an important part of this. Other states... Could adopt the vote counting process that you have in Florida and Arizona, where they tally the early votes early and dump them out and do a very rapid count, in which case you would not have those kind of like we're twisting in the wind right now around Pennsylvania results purely because the state legislature didn't want to count the votes in the most expeditious Mm -hmm. Possible way, right? So it's challenging. So if all for- the votes
2: come in on one night, then all of this gets resolved in one night, and we feel less anguished about about whether we got a call uh, one particular state wrong.
3: Well, and also you just say, okay, it's going to take a few hours. Right. Like, you know, it's 7 p.m. The polls have closed in Kentucky, but we got to wait for them to close in Arizona in two hours. So it's just like chill because, you know, it's very uh, I got uh, some texts from one of the smartest um, quantitative analysts I know in Democratic politics. Yesterday It was around 8, 830 p.m. And he was tallying up completed votes in different Indiana counties. And he was like, we're running seven, eight points ahead of Hillary, which was right in line with the polling. And then the morning after that turned out to be totally wrong. And it turned out that he had just made the exact mistake that we had all spent the prior two weeks telling everybody not to make, which was forgetting that the mail ballots and the later ballots would have different partisanship. And I mean, like, this is somebody who knew that, right? But it's like in the moment the vote count is happening so slowly. There's so much hunger for information that you start spitting out whatever analysis you can come right. up with, and it's so hard to remember what you like knew perfectly well a week before, which was like you just have to wait for the votes to sure. come. Sure,
2: that's in. that's the night of analysis. I was even thinking of the run-up, where like you know the series of stories, and again, like it wasn't oh, yeah. the pollsters that was it, you saw Republican senators publicly distancing themselves. There was a whole move away <laughs> from the entire the entire conventional wisdom of the political world was that Trump was going to lose and it was a matter of how big the loss was going to be and what kind of repudiation was it going to be. And and again, the Senate was wrong.
3: Um, and the yeah, media we got to get Republicans to be more more self-confident. Uh, <laughs> you know, people are not reporters are not better than their sources yep. in most cases. Right. I mean, it's weird. Like you look back on this and you're like, well, what like why were the Trump campaign staffers so Fatalistic, you know. Um, it's, stuff can happen though. So it's like I and several other people were told, uh, two or three days ago that there was like late movement in mm-hmm. favor of Susan Collins. Um, you can you can find my tweet about this. Like this was a known fact, but the assignments universe had kind of rolled in a certain direction, and like nobody was sending. You know, the 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 kind of you know, like man on the street stories in early November in Bangor to like go re-interview people. The public pollsters had kind of moved on from Maine. Uh so like one thing about the Trump, you know, rats from the sinking ship narrative is like A, the rats believed it. Mm-hmm. So they sold it to people, but then B, it really sells papers, you know, or or moves clicks or whatever. Like the audience. Uh, is really, really interested in accurate, credible stories that reflect poorly on Donald Trump, right? Like, so it's not like Trump's narrative, like, okay, the fake news makes stuff up about me. Like, the reason Maggie Haberman is such a star is that her reporting is good. But what people like about it isn't just that it's accurate. It, that it tells you about a crazy, batshit Trump.
2: person in, in the White House. Right. Whereas
3: where, a well-reported story about moderates in Maine who had liked Susan Collins, but turned against her, but then appreciated her independence around the Amy Coney Barrett story. Just nobody would have read that. Like, you know, they, I do they,
2: remember Maureen Dowd making a name for herself, telling really interesting narratives about the George Herbert Walker Bush White House, which is not dynamic and interesting. <laughs> uh, so there's always a demand for narrative. So we are we are at a phase now and we're predicting. So I will be wrong, but it looks like we're going to be in this phase of extended vote counting and then court challenges trump has already come out and said stop counting as he's told everyone he was going to do and has all but declared himself president um and we're going to have some kind of replay of 2000 uh we don't know to what extent the republican party is going to support trump but we're in this world where there's going to be not only uncertainty about the counting of the votes but sort of whether those votes count and what, what what various courts say do you feel like the media is equipped to tell that story
3: I mean, I think so. I mean, th- this was pretty well telegraphed. I mean, I do think that there is an embedded understanding of what the issue is. Uh, some of the like least responsible people in conservative media are acting crazy about this this morning, uh, but the more responsible people are being pretty responsible I about it. I saw Ben it.
2: Shapiro tweeting responsibly overnight.
3: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I just don't really think that that this plan, it's been telegraphed very heavily. I mean, we were talking about the vote counting issue, right? Like, the governor of Pennsylvania asked the legislature to have them count the votes quickly, and the legislature wouldn't do it, seemingly trying to set up this train wreck. But I I just, I I don't quite buy it, right? In some ways, especially because Republicans are doing well in the Senate, the conservative movement is not I think, at a level of desperation where they are going to want to cheat. Right. They had a fantastically successful
2: four years. They're playing with House money when it comes to the Senate. They thought they weren't going to win the Senate. That looks like they will have won the Senate. Um, and and you're kind of looking at maybe a gridlock for in the next four years.
3: I mean, if you're a conservative and you look at these results – And you see, okay, we have six Supreme Court justices. We control the Senate. We are going to control the bulk of the redistricting process after 2020. We don't have a ton of affirmative policy agenda anyway, uh, but we're really well positioned to block absolutely anything, even remotely controversial, that Biden wants to do. I don't think you feel so bad about that, right? If you're Donald Trump, you feel terrible. Like he, he doesn't want to lose the election. He doesn't want to be a loser. Uh, but if you're the conservative movement, you feel like this Trump thing looked at several different points in time, like it was going to wreck you. Uh, but actually it turned out okay. Turned right. out
2: great right <laughs> I mean, it's pretty well documented right that Mitch McConnell and and that they all have enormous disdain for Donald Trump uh, on the other hand they got everything they wanted right they got all the regulatory uh, uh, they destroyed the regulators they've packed the courts um that stuff set in 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 stone for a long time
3: and I think it kind of ends up looking from their perspective like you know, one of those like crazy weekends you have where,
2: <laughs> you know,
3: you, you, you really get worried at times that things are about to go off the rails, but like it it was fine. They, they got what they wanted. They they they'll fight another day for the White House. You can't win every election. Um, the geography is just tilted massively in their favor. And they maybe next time can get a presidential nominee who they have more like personal confidence in.
2: So, so two more big picture questions. Um, you were flicking at this earlier. It, it's a weird country we live in, diverse country. Um, one of the other things that happened after 2016 was a lot of uh, well-meaning journalists saying, boy, we really miss the Trump phenomenon and the Trump voter. And it's time to head out to some part of the country we don't ever go to and talk to these people. And they made an earnest project of this. Um, do we have to repeat that exercise now? Uh, Because it seems like we clearly still don't get what's going on or it's not reflected in mainstream journalism or mainstream conversations.
1: Yeah, I mean,
3: it's interesting because I think you really saw in the 2020 Democratic primary, right, if you paid attention to sort of media Twitter and like media adjacent Twitter, there was tremendous disdain for Joe Biden. Among those group of people yep. who turned out to win um, in the exact same way that Trump won, which was with a base of older and less educated supporters. And I kind of thought that that might prompt a little bit of like Trump Safari Part 2, uh, where, you know, we go talk to some some old black guys at the barbershop and, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, black some, women in some, South Carolina. Yeah. Some some retired union guys, you know, steel workers, uh, And it sort of didn't. You know, in in a weird way, it's like people didn't feel embarrassed by having gotten so all in on the Elizabeth Warren hype train. Um, So, you know, Trump, it's like you could go two different ways, right? The most interesting thing will be to find the Latinos and African-American men where Trump gains support and who seem unusual. Uh, but that's still a minority, right? The, the vast majority of Black and Hispanic people uh, are voting for Biden. The vast majority of Trump voters are just the exact same people who voted for him four years ago, you know, mostly non-college educated uh, white people. But not poor America. people,
2: which we still get wrong,
3: right? Yeah, I mean, not, 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 it, the income gradient is, is pretty flat, right? Um, so, you know, to try to get out there, I think that, you know, beyond the personality right? I think that we have to try to explore the ideas a little bit more rigorously. Like, what is it that becomes hardened conventional wisdom in sort of young, college-educated circles versus how is it that a broader spectrum of people see the country, right? That that's the kind of To to me, thing that's interesting here, it's not like, well, can you find one guy and he's like, well, I like that Trump's a businessman because like, okay, you know, people like that Trump's a businessman. But there are so many people who look at Trump and they say, this guy is racist. This guy hates women. This guy has no idea what he's talking about. And obviously, lots of other people look at that same stuff and they don't see that. In they either don't now,
2: see so it so, or they're okay with it because and then you name a thing it's it's judges or taxes and it's very specific and or Israel I think and, that's and, my dad's
3: and it's and it's some of them like it I mean yeah. some of them themselves yes. are like that's great this guy says this racist stuff that I that I enjoy or I'll put uh, up
2: with it in exchange for X I'll
3: put up with it in exchange for X but like you're 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 talking about your dad right which is I think in some ways like more to the point which is that like most people who like any politician, I'm sure he doesn't like everything that Donald Trump does, but there's something that's very important to him, right? That yep. that Trump does that he likes. And when that happens, you become more sympathetic to the overall person and that overall gestalt. And, you know, Trump has been very transactional in certain ways. Like you try to say, like, like, what is Donald Trump's foreign policy? Like, I have no fucking idea. But he's strong on Israel. He's strong on the Latin American Cold War issue. Um, and a lot of people care about those particular things, mm-hmm. right? And it's like drawn a lot of people toward him. Uh, he Cops, you know, like he yep. he loves cops and cops love him. And I don't know, you know, like there's very strong feelings on the other side of the law enforcement and, and criminal justice reform type issue. Uh, but that's a, just an objective reality that the world needs to deal with. Like if it was true that the average American saw the NYPD the way that the average vox media staffer living in brooklyn sees yep. them like the election would have had a different outcome
2: and i'm a vox media staffer who lives in a part of brooklyn that just went red again because i, I live very near staten island where where they just tossed out max <laughs> rose for you know basically showing up at a black lives matter rally but um we we kind of have a good segue here because i want to have a meta question about vox the place where we work. Yeah. Um. People think of it as a politics site, but it's really a policy site. It's 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 that's the the thing that animates, um, our leadership and and I think you and a lot of other folks who write for them. And the last four years, as far as I can tell, have had no policy uh, at a national level. Right. It, it there's a Trumpism thing, but it's narrow <laughs> self interest and capricious, and it's sort of hard to argue what he's thinking, because he doesn't seem to think, um, in a world where Joe Biden is president, you've got a recalcitrant Senate. Um, and, you know, we could imagine a scenario where kind of nothing happens for four years. Uh, and there's no point in debating the finer points of healthcare policy because nothing's going to happen. How do how do how do people who care about policy, who write about policy, think about the next span of time we're, in, we're heading for?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. You know, I'm used to the multi year cycle in which 2009, 2010, 2017, to an extent, 2018, were very sort of productive policy years, and then presidency fades away. We haven't had a new president with an opposition Senate since 1989. Uh, I was I was eight then and not deeply involved in coverage. But even if you were deeply involved, right? George H. W. Bush was a new president, but Ronald Reagan had been in office right. for eight years. So like not that much happened in the Bush administration policy wise, but I don't think people had a lot of expectations. So this will be, if if it goes how the results look right now, it it will be interesting right i mean theoretically I, this is not my prediction but it's a thing that is consistent with the facts you could have a fascinating era of bargaining over things in which big horse trading deals between biden and mitch mcconnell who uh, biden biden clearly wants to be a horse trading legislator he he was never comfortable with the idea of being a hyper-partisan progressive movement leader. Like, he wanted to win the election, and right. he when wanted to win of, an election.
2: And you can see if you look over his decades of of, of votes, right? He's, right. it's not consistent. It's sort of transactional.
3: Right. Uh, that is very at odds with the way the modern U.S. Senate works and Mitch McConnell's approach to it has been. But McConnell could wake up one day, say, you know, I'm X years old, uh, you know, this is gonna be my, my my swan song. I'm gonna get the McConnell Memorial built and, you know, help moderate Joe advance a couple priority. I, I I don't think that's what will happen. But like, it's on the table, right? The other thing that could be on the table is a lot of legal fights. Right. I mean, a lot of questions about executive branch action, the limits of congressional power. We've seen in so many state governments over the past few years, uh, in the Midwest, in North Carolina, where you have Democratic governors and Republican legislatures, um, just a lot, n- not, not bargaining over legislation, but fighting over the separation of powers and courts sort of policing what happens. So I, I think that's the sort of most likely outcome, which feels a little depressing so you,
2: to me. It's depressing it's also, you're sort of describing a bunch of sort of tactical fights and it's not sort of Mm -hmm. strategic and it's not ideas. Um, and you're, I guess we're already depressing ourselves thinking about about, (laughs) uh, covering that, but, but is there a role for sort of discussing big ideas if, if there's just zero chance that they're going to get through?
3: Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I yeah. mean, probably not. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I just hope, though. I mean, so my as, as an advocate, I just like I would encourage members of Congress to try to come up with something that they do want to do right. Like the way this I, I'm not like a huge fan of our political institutions, but the way that they are supposed to work is that one guy is like, I have this dream. And then another guy is like, I have a different dream. And then they're like, well, if we work together, we could do both of these things. The way it's worked recently is they level down. Right. So it's like, I want to do something. You want to do something. And so we do neither. Right. But like, you could always do both. Yeah. Like, mathematically. Mathematically. You right could you and, could it seems they, it
2: seems like a giant fantasy right now on Wednesday, <laughs>
3: but the morning. but the members are so frustrated. I mean, the number of members of Congress who were hoping to get positions in a Biden administration speaks clearly to the fact that they don't view their jobs as all that desirable, right? But it's on them. they They are the architects of the contemporary Congress, and they could make it different if they wanted to.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess they are going to be if you're pushing against a rock wall, you can't really argue with the rock wall. It's not not moving. Um, And on that note, I think we got to leave it because we got to figure out a way to get this podcast up and in people's ears. Um, Matt Iglesias, thank you. I would like to do this sooner than five years. We'll we'll, we'll do a repeat (laughs) session.
3: All right. Thank you. This is fine.
2: Thanks, man. Be well. Take care. Thanks again to Matt Iglesias for getting on the internet with me early to talk about what just happened and what's going to happen. Thanks again to Jelani Carter, who not only produced today's show, but he's editing it as well because it's kind of a fire drill to get this thing out early. Thanks to our sponsors who bring this podcast to you for free. And thanks to you guys for listening. We're going to have a bunch more Recode Media coming your way. Um, It's all going to be free. See you soon.